Hi there, I'm Dave Levine, and I'm really excited to welcome you back to Series 4 of the Sports Stories podcast. We've been working really hard over the past few weeks, and I've had some great fun engaging with some amazing guests with brilliant stories. I do really hope you enjoy the series as much as I have in engaging with my guests and in hearing their untold stories about their lives and careers in sport. I do have some exciting news that I will be launching the Sports Stories Academy and Sports Stories Coaching and Mentoring Service within the next few weeks. So do keep a lookout on social media, the Sports Stories website, and listen to future podcasts every Monday on all the major platforms. Well, this is episode number 31, and I would like to introduce you to another amazing guest on the Sports Stories pod. He is a professor. He is the co-host of the High Performance Podcast with co-host Jay Comfrey. He is a best-selling author, including books, Liquid Thinking and Think Like Alex Ferguson. He's a speaker and a consultant on all things high performance. And importantly, he is, in my opinion, humble, genuine, and keen to make a difference in what he does. He is Professor Damien Hughes. I've long admired the work Damien has done, both in his thinking, but also the manner in which he delivers his message and story. Furthermore, I have also really enjoyed the curiosity and depth of questions he has asked during the brilliant High Performance Podcast he co-hosts with Jay Comfrey, and digging a little deeper and helping make sense is what he does best. So I was delighted when Damien agreed to join me on the Sports Stories podcast and allow me to turn the tables and ask the questions. For me, Damien is a person that has really given time reflecting on his origin story and the work he does and why he does it. I am confident that you will both enjoy hearing his story as well as take some real nuggets to help you on your journey. So go grab a pen, find some time for you and take the time to invest in yourself and we will get stuck in. I would therefore like to give a very warm welcome to my very special guest, Professor Damien Hughes. Damien, thanks so much for, for joining me on the Sports Stories podcast today. I, I really appreciate you giving up your time in your busy diary. Um, I, I'm so looking forward to speaking to you, actually, because, you know, from the work you've been doing as an author, um, as a podcast co-host, as a presenter, as a coach, you know, there's so many different strings to your bow. So I'm, I don't know where we're going to go today, but it's just great to, great to have you with me. So thanks. Well, above all, thank you for thanks for the, uh, inviting me, Dave. Uh, I've, I've, I've enjoyed listening to the series and I know uh, how hard you work with it. So it was a real honour to be invited. So thank you. Thank, oh. uh, thanks for extending that. Great. Well, you know, I, I'm sure we'll cover so much different ground and go all over the place. But I, I'd really like to start off with just... Um, getting a bit of a sense of, of, of who, who you, Damien, the person is, and also, you know, what was your kind of first uh, experiences of sport and, and why they were influential and, and memorable to you? Right, okay, so so I, my origin story, in many ways, uh, is, um, so I grew up in North Manchester, yeah. um, and uh, interwoven with that is my first experiences of sport that uh, actually happened before I was born. So um, my dad was a boxing coach uh, in the city, and uh, before I was born, he'd established a boxing club um, uh, in that northern part of the city. Now, like a lot of boxing clubs, or, um, they often are based in inner city areas that sometimes are socially deprived, and that was certainly true of... Uh, the uh, the part of Manchester where we grew up. So, in the early uh, 2000s, for example, there was a report that categorised it as Europe's third poorest district. And the reason I mention that is more to give you an idea of the kind of social issues that often uh, emanate um, in in those kind of deprived areas. Um, and that's where the boxing club almost came into its own. So, my dad uh, had set it up there. And um, I got two experiences uh, that were really quite powerful that have shaped and informed a lot of the work that I do today, to be honest, Dave. So one of the phrases we often use in academia is that we don't do research, we do me-search, where we try and make sense of our own lives and uh, find evidence to support it. And I think I was around guys uh, from as long as I can remember that were training to become uh, to either go to the Olympic Games or to become British, European or world boxing champions. So I was around high performance from as long as uh, I can remember. And I was almost uh, had um, a front row seat to the work of coaching in that and how important that was uh, and how lonely, how tough, how hard it could be. The other thing that was also fascinating for me, though, was that 
the importance of culture and how yeah. powerful culture can be in shaping high performance. So I gave you some context of the area where the, uh, where the boxing club was based. And what I'd estimate is that I'd probably say 90% of the people that came into that boxing gym never laced a pair of boxing gloves on in their life and never intended to. Yeah. But it was almost a sanctuary away from some of the difficulties or troubles that they were facing outside of those doors. And they were coming in there, they were treated with respect, they were treated with courtesy, uh, and they were made to feel like they were somebody. Right. Um, so there was all kinds of different things that, I, that have almost informed a lot of my practice. Say, for example, I often talk with people about being really clear and removing ambiguity about yeah. what your standards of behaviour are. Yeah. And that was completely non-negotiable within the boxing club. So yeah. the example that um, I'd offer to illustrate that is that bad language wasn't allowed. Okay. And it wasn't some kind of moral judgment of swearing is bad or good. It was nothing like that. It was just that using bad language was seen as a sign of ill discipline. Okay. And in the boxing club, a lack of discipline is terminal to, uh, uh, to performance. So bad language wasn't allowed. And yet you'd have people that maybe... Uh, we're involved in all kinds of villainy outside of there, but yeah. coming into that world yeah. and wouldn't F and blind do anything. But the moment they left it, would carry on in their old way. And so the culture was really powerful in terms of shaping behaviours and driving performance. Yeah. So I was around that um, all um, through all of my life in many ways. And, 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 and it was seminal in terms of shaping and influencing not only me, but the people that came there. So I'll tell you a nice sort of coda to the story is that yeah, yeah. Like, my dad's quite poorly these days. He's got uh, advanced dementia. But a couple of years ago, Manchester Council named a road uh, in Manchester in honour, uh, uh, they named it after him in honour of the work that he'd done in the community. And uh, there must have been, I'd say it was a cold January afternoon when uh, we unveiled it, the Lord Mayor of Manchester came along and... Uh, I'd say there was about 300 people turned up just to acknowledge the, uh, the honour and, uh, and be there at the ceremony. And I'd estimate that 90% of the people that turned up there that day, Dave, had never boxed in their life, but they'd been members of the club. And what they spoke about was how it had shaped them as people, as parents, as partners, as professionals, in all of those factors were what they recognised, almost like the... Uh, the power of the culture and how it had shaped them as individuals. So I grew up around that environment and I think I, uh, my dad realised very quickly that uh, I was never going to be able to box to any decent level okay. um, because boxing is one of those sports um, like you play football, you play rugby, but you only box. Yeah. There's no sort of uh, <laughs> adjective to describe it. Uh, uh, and And the reason I mention that is that you can get hurt in a sport like boxing very easily. And there's people that would be happy to take advantage of you, yeah. of your willingness, yeah. but maybe not, but your lack of ability. So my dad very quickly was happy for me to box and learn some of the lessons from it, but not to try and pursue it uh, any great level. But he did push us down the route of uh, academia. He okay. said, you know what, like go and learn. Cause he felt that the, uh, education was almost like the engine to change lives so he was very keen that we that that we sort of didn't neglect our education and was he so, or was he from an educational background at all did he have a, a no i mean I, 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 his own story is uh, is fascinating he was illiterate so um oh. he so yeah he grew up in post-war manchester in a catholic family but he was an he was an illegitimate child now that growing up in a Catholic family and being illegitimate um, was a stigma yeah. that in terms of the community and for him. So he never, so, um, and he grew up in, 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 in quite difficult circumstances um, and his route out, he felt that boxing was his route out. He loved boxing, but because he didn't have a father figure, um, he was abused in the sport. So yeah. when I say abused, I don't mean yeah. sexually, but more, yeah physically abused in terms of yeah. he was thrown in and overmatched and, yeah. and he got quite badly hurt. And that was a big, I think those, there was two very clear drivers behind my, uh, my dad. One, setting up the boxing club allowed him to be a father figure 
to a lot of those young people that came in there. So I like I was aware of that from very early on where we'd have boxers come to stay with us, with our family or people that were troubled. You know, he'd go to court, he'd represent them and he'd do what he could to help them. But um, he also as well wanted to um, to almost right the wrongs of uh, uh, in terms of the community support that he felt he hadn't had. So that was why he was very clear that, say, with his boxers, uh, he used to have a conversation with them where he'd ask them, do you really want to do this? Uh, like those that he felt he had ability. And when they, if they almost made that that agreement and stepped over that threshold, he'd have a conversation where he'd get them to stand in front of a mirror and he'd say, he'd say, I do not want you to leave this sport looking any different than the person that's coming into it. So in terms of we're going to work on defence that you'll never get hurt. So one of his trademarks of his fighters was that they had brilliant defences That because it was almost like it, 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 in football terms, if you don't concede a goal, you'll yeah. never lose. And, but it was always like, if you don't get hit, yeah, you lose. might not win a fight, but you'll <laughs> never actually lose. Yeah. So they were sort of very powerful drivers behind the dad. And he, he actually taught himself to read and write when he, when he got into sort of uh, adulthood. And he ended up writing a number of books himself. So, we, yeah, because we never got any funding for the club. So he had an idea that he was going to write a book and he'd raise money that would keep the, uh, the boxing club running uh, independently. So when we were kids, we used to go down to Manchester Library with him and do it. So he grew up and, he, and, and, and um, there was boxers around Manchester in sort of a, in the early part of the 20th century. There was a guy called Jackie Brown that was, um, he was Manchester's first ever world champion. And my dad knew him when he was an old man and he, his story had never been told. So we used to go down to Manchester Library and do all the research with my dad and we'd get all like the old newspaper articles and things like that. And then he used to sit and just used to type out, like tap out one finger at a time, the story. And he ended up writing, uh, he ended up writing uh, 10 different books, but he did it all in his passion. So it was about boxers that he'd loved when he was a kid. So there was boxers like... Uh, uh, Willie Pep, there was another boxer called John McAvoy, all Manchester fighters. Yeah. And then his other great passion was Manchester United. And his, uh, so he'd grown up in the era of the Busby Babes. Yeah, yeah. So he ended up writing a book on uh, on Tommy Taylor, the centre forward. Uh, he wrote a book on Dennis Filer. And then oh. one of his, <laughs> but then his mentor was um, uh, Matt Busby's assistant, Jimmy Murphy. So he ended up writing a book about Jimmy Murphy as well and sort of drawing on all of this. So they were his real passions of him. So, I mean, he's still with us. Like I say, he's very poorly these days, but he was an amazing man. And I always felt really privileged that I grew up with a mum and dad like I did, that were sort of just going out there and giving it a go and sort of, and, and shaping lives on the way. So, I mean, you can't help but not be affected or influenced by by growing up in that environment. Well, and I'm listening to you, you know, and it just sounds like a real parallel journey nearly, isn't it? In terms of the, the, the boxing stories that you've gone through and also the, the writing of books and, and so on. Uh, you know, there, there's some, I'm always fascinated by actually, you know, what do we pick up from our family and our parental environment and how do we either replicate it or change it? 100%, yeah. I mean, that really fascinates uh, me as well, that, that there's a phrase I sometimes use where you can see the ghost of, your, of people's childhood <laughs> rattling around their adult bodies. Yeah. Uh, so, and I'd like to illustrate the point, I say to people, do you know grown-ups that still have temper tantrums? And they go, oh yeah, I do. And they go, <laughs> right, yeah. It's because, because when they were a kid, they learn a lesson that if you shout for loud enough and long enough, eventually everyone concedes to you. And as an adult, that's your frame of reference that yeah. your mental model is the same. And I've, the, I've sort of reflected a lot on this in terms of okay. what, uh, about what did I take out of it? So um, I do try and sort of um, follow some of those those teachings and understanding of it. So like I talk about this idea of non-negotiable behaviours. I've, I've sort of reflected on that myself and I'm really clear I've got three behaviours that I'm not prepared to compromise on. So I've even ranked them in order. So, <laughs> so, so they're almost like mental gatekeepers for me. Yeah. So if I'm in a situation which is ambiguous or I'm uncertain of, I often say, right, the first one is, is it kind? And when I talk about kindness, I'm talking about kindness to myself first and then kindness, and then you have the capacity to be kind to others. 
So am I sort of doing something that's unkind to myself? Am I speaking or treating myself unkindly? Because then that means that you inevitably play that forward to others. And, so, and just and on that one, Damien, I really like the idea that you you, you mentioned they're kind, but kind to myself first before others. Why in that order? Because I, I go with that, but I'm sure many people out there who are helpers in the world that we work in don't do themselves first. Yeah, um, like all like all of these reflections are based on mistakes right. <laughs> or, or painful experiences, mm-hmm. uh, and. I think I, I like I've come a couple of times to points where I've physically been exhausted or mentally you've been frazzled, uh, and when I've reflected back on those periods, I, it's often because I've treated myself pretty unkindly. It's almost like just get on with it, stop whinging, just suck it up, and having that kind of attitude to myself first of all has meant that. Um, I've, uh, I've pushed myself beyond my breaking point. So yeah. I'll give you an example. When I was 21, I ended up um, contracting meningitis and I got quite seriously ill. And uh, I, it, it came back again when I was in my mid-30s and there was a pattern to it. And the doctors said to me that you were frazzled, said you push yourself beyond the limit where basically you'd, you'd basically shattered your immune system that meant you were open to getting an illness. And on each occasion, you got something pretty serious and you can either be daft and just keep going oh well just get on with it or you can start to go hang on well what like what was lacking there yeah what's the message yeah, to and, you yeah and i think when you do that as well i think what again reflections go you know what but i don't think i was being kind to the people around me either right. because i didn't have any capacity left for yeah. kindness so i think that that like, that's an important factor okay cool. um the second one is uh i that it has to be fun and it has to be engaging. Uh, and part of the reason for that is it might sound a frivolous word to use, but I, I think if you do something that really excites you, it means that you'll immerse yourself in it and that you then, therefore, by by definition, you'll almost give your best. If you give in everything, you'll give the best of what you're capable of in that moment. So I think making sure that it's fun uh, is really important and that you can have a laugh along the way. And then the third one is, can it make a positive difference? So my dad used to say to me, he said, uh, if uh, if your presence doesn't make an impact, your absence won't make a difference. And it's almost like if you just if you're just showing up to make up the numbers, like he used to say about the boxing or playing football, he'd say if you're not going out there and you're not trying or you're not contributing in some way, if we bring you off, nobody notices because because you didn't offer anything in the first place. <laughs> no value in that. Yeah. Yeah, so it's almost like like we were having the conversation off air before we came on air, and when you were kind enough to invite me on air, and I understand the premise that you're trying to share people's stories and help other people and give people access to some of these insights. You go, you know what, one, it, it's kind. Yeah. So I feel that what you're trying to do is kindness, and I can relate to that. It's a laugh, and it's a privilege yeah. to come and meet you and chat with you, and, 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 and I'm thoroughly enjoying it. And the third one is, does it make a positive difference? Well, I hope so. We hope so. I'm yeah. doing my best to can to share it. And, and and if anybody does take something, that's great. So it was a no-brainer to say, I'd love to come on Sports Stories with you and chat. Mm-hmm. But, I, but I often find that that kind of approach has started as I've got a bit older. It allows you to be uh, a little bit more judicious or discerning in your decision-making. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. if I find myself sometimes working... In a, in a culture or an environment where you go, you know what, kindness is perceived as a weakness or it's not respected there, or you're going in there and you go, this isn't great fun, that I'm not yeah. particularly enjoying being around these people. Or the third one is, I feel like I'm speaking, but I'm not, it's not having any traction or yeah. any difference. Yeah. Rather than keep flogging a dead horse, you go, you know what, it doesn't make you a bad person. I mean, it doesn't make me a bad person. It just means it's not right at this moment in time for either of us. So yeah. rather than fall out about it or walk away feeling disillusioned or disenfranchised with each other, let's just agree at this moment in time that it's not meeting my needs. And yeah. I, by definition, I can't meet yours. Yeah. So let's leave as friends and yeah. maybe we can work together again on another come occasion. Back, come back together, yeah. David, I was struck by the, the term you used earlier on, which I think really underpins everything around the idea of me search you know, and and how we make sense in the world and making sense of our world. You yeah. know, just from the, the first parts that you've shared here, I, 
I love the insight that you've got and, you know, and how you're sharing so openly um, your story and the impact your father had on you and continues to have. Um, when did you feel that you started really becoming aware of that kind of impact more consciously? Yeah, uh, I mean, that's a really good question. I think um, it's sometimes difficult to disentangle yeah. your memory, like what was a memory with what <laughs> then subsequently became an insight. Does that make sense? So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so if I give you an example that doesn't reflect well on me at all, but, yeah, <laughs> but, it, but it, it, by sharing it, I think it helps you get an idea of what I've just said about those non-negotiable behaviours. Is uh, when I was about 14, I was sparring one day in the club. Um, and uh, so I was in the ring, I was moving in, and this kid come in. And uh, it was pretty evident quite early on that I was better than him, that, he, that I was overmatched. So in that situation, your job there isn't, it is to almost work with your opponent and you both get something out of it and things like that. But I was 14, I was an adolescent, and I was an idiot. So... Uh, my head kicked in and I ended up taking the liberty with this kid. So I ended up sort of like uh, boxing around him and, and sort of like knocking his head back and sort of yeah. just uh, sort of leaving this kid, obviously not feeling great for the experience of being in there. Yeah. And uh, we finished the three, three minute rounds and I'm sort of getting out of the ring, sort of feeling pretty uh, pleased with myself. And as I'm climbing out of the ropes, my dad comes over and says, uh, where are you going? So I finished sparring. He said, no, you haven't. He said, that wasn't a workout. He said, uh, get back in the ring. He said, stay in. He said, you've not worked up a sweat. He said, stay in. And then the next thing he did was he threw this young professional fighter yeah. in with me. <laughs> I thought that was good. So he was a lad that was like uh, quite a bit older than me. And he just stepped in the ring with me. And uh, he proceeded to humiliate me for the next 10 minutes. And I'd say it was the longest 10 minutes of my life in terms of right, it didn't right. hurt me. So he didn't physically hurt me, but emotionally, he humiliated me. So he rocked my head back. He sort of just kept slipping my punches, uh, kept sort of making me feel slow and ponderous. And when I got out at the end of it, I can remember, like, I had tears of frustration stinging my eyes. And uh, my dad said to me, he said, how do you feel? And I don't think I, I said anything, I think, because... Swearing wasn't allowed, and I wouldn't have yeah. swore at my dad. But I think I, I, I think the humiliation had sort of um, stuck in my throat, and I knew, and I was conscious that people had watched me get a large slice of humble pie served to me, and I'd obviously enjoyed the experience of it. And I was close to tears of frustration. My dad just said to me, "How you feel now is how you just made that lad feel 15 minutes ago," and he said, "Don't ever." ever take a liberty or bully anybody again. And that was it. Now, I, I, I'm, I'm recounting that story 30 plus years later, yeah. and it still makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand yeah, up. No. Well, it does but, me. <laughs> yeah. But it it, it, it it was like a life lesson learned that has never that has never needed to be repeated since because of the power of it um, was, so, uh, was so significant. So... When you answer the question about how much, like that memory is so vivid for me that I'm not sure I could have articulated what it taught me at 14. Yeah. But the power of it is still um, um, is still there. So there's been an awful lot of stuff that I think, as you sort of uh, get older and reflect a lot more, I think I've started to increasingly appreciate the value of it, and then as I've sort of gone down the route of researching topics or looking in more depth, you then subsequently start going, ah, right, that makes sense in terms of what I experienced. Uh, so I'd probably say to answer the question, David, it's a long way of, uh, uh, no, of doing so. But I think I, um, I would probably say it's a mixture. Some of it was really quite vivid lessons being taught in the moment. But I think the real value of it is the reflections that come in the years afterwards. Yeah. So... So, yeah, it's a combination, to be honest. And, and, and I love the idea, though, you know, in terms of how those memories stick with us, but then we're, they're kind of nearly brought to life, aren't they, later down the line when we make sense of them, the, the kind of me search, you know, as we're unravelling things, they start sort of dropping into place. And you, you also give me a real sort of insight into, you know, you making sense or how you've made sense. And, and I think part of what I love about the conversations I've had over time is, is, is hearing how people have, 
have unraveled and tried to make sense of their world. And, and I wonder, again, how did you learn to do that? Did you learn to do it? You know, this kind of reflection kind of approach, or is this something that's just evolved and... Wow, I think that's an amazing question because it's one that I, I, I have spent a lot of time thinking about because, um, <laughs> and, and, and part of the reason I think about it is that, is that I, I felt at times that it's almost like, as I get older, you become wiser. And then I realised that I wasn't. <laughs> and what I mean by that is that is, is that age doesn't confer wisdom. Reflection confers wisdom on you. And it's having the discipline to sit down and try and make sense of something uh, and do that. So it, it, in really crude terms, I sometimes use this to be provocative, but I say, I know over, over, uh, over the years, I've met lots of really smart young people and I've met plenty of stupid old people. Yeah. And, 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 and I think the reason I say that in, in those provocative terms is that it's about your ability to learn and unlearn yeah. and challenge your thinking and go back and be flexible yeah. about it that, um, that, that the real value comes from. So yeah. I've always been a reflector. I, I, the, I, I get a lot of energy from spending time on my own. Like yeah. okay. my, uh, uh, my wife said to me that uh, like when we met, um, it was about a year into the relationship and she said to me, she said, I've just discovered that you're a secret geek. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? And she was like, well, on the surface, you wouldn't look like you're bookish or you like researching or reading or you enjoy just going for a walk on your own. But you do, don't you? And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's where I get my energy from, that I enjoy being around people and, and yeah. being immersed in things. But I also am quite singular in terms of that. And I think I like the time to go away um, that we were speaking again off air. I got a dog uh, last year yeah. and uh, part of the real benefits of having uh, my dog is me and him just like walking. And when I walk, I like sort of reflecting on something that I'm working on or challenging and trying to think about what does it mean or how could I articulate it better? So I think that's a really valuable skill that is often uh, not given the respect it deserves. I think we're all living such busy lives yeah. that I think sort of, removing ourselves from the fray to try and make sense of it and articulate it and communicate it uh, is, is a really valuable skill. Yeah. And I've learned it, again, through mistakes, through sort of trying to wing it or packing your agenda too tightly, yeah. that there's never any time for that reflection uh, afterwards. And, and Damien, you know, in terms of moving us on, and, and, you know, I'm also thinking about how you know, you've you've achieved loads, and I, and I, you know, I know parts of your story, and you know, obviously written a number of, you know, really great books, um, and and driven yourself uh, a kind of a, a a pathway through sport and business and so on. And I, I'm quite curious in terms of that reflection, but also how that links to kind of purpose and and ambition. And how, how have, do you know where you're going? Did you know where you're going, or has things just evolved over time? Yeah. Um... The short answer is no. Uh, I'm making it up as I go along, yeah. um, and um, and um, and that's tended to be true uh, for all of it. I think being consistent with my non-negotiable behaviours um, has been more valuable than necessarily having a having a fixed destination right. in mind about it. Um, so wanting to go into an environment where you can make a positive difference, um, the work around culture. Um, is uh, you know that 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 informs pretty much all uh, all of the work that I do there. Uh, but I get a big buzz out of working with people I like, uh, making a difference, and having fun doing it. But I wouldn't say that I have any particular fixed uh, fixed destination in mind because I, I, I again this is a reflection piece. I I don't think I'm a particularly healthy person when it comes to having a goal in mind because I become quite obsessive about it. Okay. Yeah. So, so it's like um, when I commit to writing a book, for example, uh, it basically consumes me. And yeah, and, and sometimes I've come out of the process like I've spent two or three years down a rabbit hole of researching stuff where it, the, the, like people will say to me, oh, did you watch that on telly? And I go, I haven't watched telly for two years yeah. because I'm spending my evenings sort of first <laughs> in a paper or something like that. So I, d I don't always think that's particularly healthy, especially having um, a young family and having other commitments. So 
Um, I try not to get too fixated on a certain destination, um, uh, but I'm not, I'm not very good at it. I'm not very skilled at, uh, at sort of keeping that balance uh, in play. So um, I think having those, those behaviours is more helpful because when I, I can ask, am I being kind to myself here? And it, it might be that I'm, I'm really loving researching a paper every evening but then I go, but am I being kind to my family? Well, actually, my children need me to read bedtime stories or yeah, yeah. they need me there. So I'm not being kind and therefore it forces me to stop and reflect a bit more than what I'd, uh, I'd done over the years. And you raise that lovely tension for me between that kind of the that that ambition and that drive and that fixed destination, which, you know, a lot of people talk about, don't they, in terms of where are we going and what we're trying to achieve, but also the... The, the staying in the moment and being in the now and the importance of actually living what's going on right here, right now. And I think for well, me, I think that's, that's I, 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 yeah. And I think this has been really, um, I mean, the last 12 months have been a real journey of discovery for, uh, for myself as well. So um, I've been working on um, these series of interviews that I've been doing with, um, uh, with a guy called Jay Comfrey, who's a friend of mine. And uh, we've been sitting down with people and one of the people we sat down with that really had quite a, quite a powerful impact on us was we interviewed Johnny Wilkinson and he used a phrase that, that really sort of moved me where he said he survived his career rather than enjoyed it. So he enjoyed it as opposed to enjoying it. And he told some quite stories about the stress uh, that he'd put himself under during his career and, and the subsequent mental health issues that he'd had. And I think we've been calling our conversations high performance conversations. And then there was a moment where you went, you know what? Being happy in the moment is high performance. That it's not about, and this is a guy that's conquered the world in his chosen discipline and when, but it damaged me, the pursuit of it. So I've come away and realised that being happy in the moment is, 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 a, is success. And we don't try and offer, and I certainly wouldn't offer to any of your listeners here, that there's no formula for this. I'm not saying that my way is right and somebody else's is wrong. I think the question that I prefer to ask is, is this helpful for you or, not, or unhelpful? And I think that Johnny Wilkinson framing the conversation that way, I found that quite a helpful definition that meant, ah, you know what? It's not about constantly striving for the next thing, the next thing, the next. and being on that hedonic treadmill. It's sometimes just enjoying being where you are in that moment with who, with who you're with and what you've got. And that seems to resonate quite powerfully with me. Now, as I say, I'm not offering that as a formula and saying that is the answer, but it certainly... It's your uh, answer, nearly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It certainly spoke to me as an answer. And I really like that as well, because it speaks to me as an answer in terms of actually the irony of actually maybe being happy, living in the moment uh, is successful and actually might even return really great results as well, whatever they might be in terms of performance. You know, and I know you talk about it linked to high performance, but... Sometimes the less hard we try, the more successful we might well be. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think that having that faith and that trust in uh, in the process, yeah. that I know people talk about that, but sometimes don't get fixated with the outcome of the performance goals, yeah. but go into the process goals, just get in, enjoy the moment of become immersed or enjoy mastering a particular skill or something like that. Yeah. Get immersed in that bit and then... And and, and, and and then that's success for you. Yeah. That you almost then just trust in it that I'm gonna I'm gonna do the best I can with what I've got and where I am. I mean, this was I, I, um, this was a big reason that uh, I removed myself from social media earlier this year when we started it, and that was part of it because one, I've got um, my son uh, was eleven, and for his birthday he got his first phone, yeah. and I, so some of it was about role modeling and setting an example that. I didn't want him to see me constantly being distracted by my phone in terms of things like that. And I thought I can't steer him away from some of the sort of apps and social media. Yeah. If he then goes, well, you're doing you're it. You're doing it. So, so that was a big part of it. But another big part was working on this, uh, this uh, podcast series. I felt that I'm, I'm traveling outside of my comfort zone doing it, that I've never broadcast before. I've never sat down and sort of had to prepare these interviews as thoroughly as we're doing it and the research and things like that. And I've also got a bit of a stammer and I was conscious that I'm, that I'm, I'm, that I'm going to be on the radio, uh, on a podcast and 
I'm, I'm sometimes self-aware of it when I get um, nervous or anxious. My stammer seems to be a, a little bit more affected. And after what, the, and the first time that Jake put something on social media, um, a comment about this this series we we're working on, the first comment was somebody to call me. Uh, there was a picture of me, him, and Rio Ferdinand, and somebody called us three. Uh, if I could, well, if I can use the word, it was they described us as three cunts. Was the first comment underneath it, and I remember thinking that, and I was toying with the idea of coming off all of this because of the examples of a son, and I thought, you know what, I'd, that I'm going to do the best I can with yeah. what I've got and where I am, and I don't want the uh, the subjective opinion of somebody making a, a, some nasty comment about me to affect me just get, enjoying the process of doing the best I can. So if you remove yourself from the conversation, that allows me to enjoy the process of doing the best I can to prepare for these interviews. And then whatever comes from it is the best that I was capable of offering. And do you know what? And it's just so, so lovely the way you've explained it and described it there, just in a sense of actually the, the journey that you're going on. Because I know, you know, people in performance environments, you know, myself, we're doing the podcast, we're putting ourselves out there. But actually, there is a real journey going on behind the scenes, isn't there, for us all, and how you've reflected on it. And, you know, I'm sure so many people don't appreciate the the energy and the thought processes and the, um, the emotional energy that goes into these kind of um, endeavours, you know, and I'm just... It's just Absolutely, yeah. And that's why, yeah, I, I mean, that's why um, my respect for you in terms of what you've been putting out there and the quality of the content of the Sports Stories podcast that you've done um, is, well, it speaks for itself, but I also feel that having sort of been in a similar world now for the last <laughs> year, I can really appreciate the effort, the hard work, the commitment that goes into you doing it. But then also the fact that you're putting yourself out there. This is Dave doing this, and that, and by definition, you're making yourself vulnerable because you're saying something about yourself and what you stand for. Yeah. And I think, would I have appreciated that two years ago? Uh, not as much as I do now. Yeah. And that's why, you know, my sort like I was honoured when you asked me, but it was also like, you know, why wouldn't you want to help somebody if you've got the capacity to do so? Um, but yeah, I, I, I think I think this is something though that like even during this pandemic that we're in at the moment, I talk to people around. Um, I sometimes play a game of never have I ever said, and I said when you see pol politicians on telly, I said what are the kind of things you say. And most people go they're useless. I could do a better job than them. I said have you ever said what a difficult and complex task that they're trying to manage in a time of ambiguity. I'm not sure how they deal with it. And most people go, no, I've never said that. You go, right. So we've fallen in the trap of the Dunning-Kruger law. The Dunning-Kruger law is we're as stupid as... Uh, uh, so if, if we don't understand something, we think we're experts at it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So it's like somebody can listen to it and go, oh, I could do a better job than that. No, you, you couldn't because you don't understand the complexity and the nuance of what they're trying to deal with. So yeah. you've got a simple answer to a complex situation. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you immerse yourself in it, you'd appreciate what they're trying to do. And at the end of it, you'll hit the hill of knowledge where you go, ah, right, I appreciate why they did it. And I think what I've found uh, in my experience of being around high-performing individuals or cultures is they get over that, that Dunning-Kruger law quite quickly, that hill of ignorance. They get beyond that and go, right, actually, let's ask questions. Let's explore. Let's try and understand what we're, doing, what we're dealing with rather than just sweeping with an opinion on something. And when, do, when do you think that landed for you in your world? Because, you know, what, what, you know as I'm getting to know you here and you're, you're obviously putting yourself out into the wider world and, and, and what I really love about it in, in terms of showing that vulnerability, you know, and I think that is the case, isn't it? I'm, I'm getting over the hill because I'm open to being who I am and being honest about who I am and what I'm about. And I'm yeah. just wondering, can you give an example of when that really hit you and you thought, Right, this is things need to change. Uh, yeah, yeah, so I've had I've had it happen a number of times okay. uh, in my life, um, the, and the tragedy is sometimes we have to wait for like a car crash to happen before yeah. we learn to drive slowly. Do you know what <laughs> I mean? And then the frustration is you go, I could have learned that before I crashed the car. Well, why didn't you know? I? <laughs> yeah. yeah, and um, like 
a personal example, it, it, so I, I made reference to it earlier, but the second time I got meningitis, um, I'd, um, I'd just allowed myself to get run down. I was working myself to a frazzle. And uh, where I was working at the time, um, I'd, 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 I'd misunderstood the rules of the game, right? Okay. I, that I thought it mattered. And I'd, and, in, and, and in my head, I'd sort of attributed uh, like a bit of a mission or a sense of purpose to what I was doing. And my employers at the time, I was just a number. And as long as I was hitting the number, it didn't really matter that they could have got somebody else in. And as long as they hit the number, it wouldn't have mattered. But in my head, it was like, no, no, I'm committed to this. And I want to, and I want to make this happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I say, I've, I've, I've got this nature where sometimes it takes you down rabbit holes that, 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 that can end up damaging you. And this is what happened. I got myself uh, in hospital, having a lumbar puncture, Oh, to uh, diagnose what type of man- uh, meningitis I had. And my girlfriend at the time, she's my wife now, but she sort of went and phoned my employers to say, listen, he's seriously ill, he's in a, in a bad way. And uh, she told me this when I got better. I didn't know it at the time, but it took them... Uh, the first question they asked was, is it contagious? Do we have to shut the place down? <laughs> uh, and then it took them nearly 48 hours to phone back and find out if I'd survived or not. And... When she told me that, as I say, I was better at the time. I often say that was the day I mentally resigned. I physically followed through a while later okay, and yeah. decided it wasn't right for me. Yeah. But that was like um, a significant moment of yeah. going. And I don't feel bitter. It was about misunderstanding the rules of the game. Yeah. I'd applied a purpose yeah. to it that they didn't do. And I'd misunderstood the rules of the game that I was playing. <laughs> And, and 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 it had taken me to a place where it had damaged me. So I think that that's like quite a visceral example I'm offering there of, yeah. of sort of having to go through that process of reflection yeah. before you realise, nah, nah, that, like the game has changed here. Yeah. So this is again when I work with uh, like leaders or, or or coaches in a sporting environment. This is why I often say be really clear about the rules of the game because yeah. if people know what the rules are playing they can either make a decision to join up or not. So like this was really articulated quite beautifully in one of these interviews we were saying we did. Yeah. Um, we sat down with uh, the uh, the soccer coach, Mauricio Pochettino, and he had a really lovely way of describing it that, because I feel sometimes when I describe it, it can feel quite combative or quite aggressive yeah. and it isn't intended to be, but I talk about this idea of the FIFA effect, that when you tell people the rules of the game, they either choose to fit in or fuck off. Yeah. But but the choice is there. Yeah. And I'm conscious that that can sometimes come across as abrasive. <laughs> and uh, Pochettino uh, um, used the same phrase. He was aware of the FIFA thing. But he just said, he said, do you know what? If you choose to fuck off, it doesn't make you a bad person. Yeah. It just means that you're not in the right environment to get the best out of yourself. Yeah. And I thought, why didn't I think of explaining it in that way? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> because, because because my view is it gets people's back to go, oh, I got whereas he was just going, no, no, no. You know, these are my rules of the game. This is what I play by. Yeah. But if that doesn't suit you, that's absolutely fine. But I'm gonna tell you the rules before we start playing together. Yeah. And you yeah. can decide it allows you to make a choice, doesn't it? I guess. Hundred <laughs> yeah. percent. And when you make a choice, choice, therefore you're either all in or all out, but you can't be half in. You can't yeah. go, oh, I didn't think it was that. No, 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 we told you the rules. And then most people, when they know the rules that they're playing, yeah. will will make the choice and then commit and yeah. then stop worrying about other factors. You get on there, we're worrying about giving you best. Well, you know, and, I, and what a great little story there. And I think choices is a really, really key thing. And it's one of my, my key aspects about actually that whole idea of taking 100% responsibility. Again, that's all about the choices we take as individuals, isn't it? You know, and how we lead our lives is really important. And, you know, I've listened to some of the podcasts you've done, you know, and the people I speak to in my world. And I just think that's such a, a key aspect for us all to kind of work on and become clearer about. But also take the responsibility in the role that we play in actually setting the, the ground rules or explaining them. So 100%, yeah. So it's like, like one of the phrases that I, that I often use when I talk to leaders is ambiguity is your big enemy. Right. Because, because if, you're, if you're in a situation that's ambiguous, that if you're turning a blind eye to a certain behaviour one day, but then you seize on it the next yeah. day, or if one of the better players can get away with behaving like that, but then 
you wouldn't let somebody else do it. Mm. That creates ambiguity and then people feel uncertain. And when we feel uncertain, we retreat to default behaviours or we become defensive or a little bit circumspect in the way we operate. So there's so many issues in life that if you can just remove the ambiguity from the situation at the start by being really clear about it, you can often save so many issues further on uh, down the line. Well, and Damien, I, I'm playing back to just something that you said a, a few minutes ago in terms of actually the mobile phone and your son and you coming off social media. You know, that's your attempt of really uh, taking that medicine, isn't it? And, and not being ambiguous in your actions and actually setting a real clear clarity and role model there for your son. And, you know, I just think it's really great to hear a story of somebody who's who's really reflecting and thinking, learning through their journey, sharing some of their failures, but also really attempting to take that responsibility and make a difference around them. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Well, I mean, thank you. That's kind of you. Um, and I offer it more because that I'm conscious that I'd, I'd been sort of um, very responsive to people and pe- because this idea of if I can help, I'll help and I will do. Yeah. And I think I think some people reflected on it that when I removed myself from it, I thought, oh, well, what's the matter with him? I watched me rude. And they said, well, not being rude to anybody. If anyone needs to get hold of me, I'd, you know, you're welcome yeah. to drop me an email and I'll still respond with the same courtesy. But but I, I, I was really clear, clear about that kindness piece, starting with being kind to myself, so not constantly being distracted, but then being kind to the people around me. And yeah. in that case, it was about trying to set an example for my son yeah. to say, you need healthy habits with this kind of thing here. But yeah, you're right about, I love that idea of complete responsibility. Again, I actually find that's quite a liberating phrase that we're hearing so often from um, uh, from some of our high performers that it's like, you know, but people misunderstand it. Oh, it's easy to sort of lampoon it because you go, no, they're not people saying that shit doesn't happen. It does. And they're, they're recognising that things have happened that are unfortunate. But how they choose to respond to that is entirely within their control. So we did an interview with a lad that I found quite, quite, quite powerful, um, a young seventeen-year-old uh, boy at the time called Billy Munger that was racing in Formula Four, I think it was, mm. and he had a car crash. Uh, he 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 doesn't remember anything beyond crashing the car. When he wakes up three days later, he's had both his legs amputated at seventeen, mm. and talking to him, he went. He said, within a day of waking up, he asked if he could see the footage of the crash. And then I said, what did you you want to learn from it? He said, I wanted to learn, was it my fault? What did I do wrong? It quickly emerged, it wasn't my fault. It was down to another car that had stopped on the track. And so he said, once I could get over that idea of looking for uh, account, like um, whose fault it was, I then shifted to responsibility. And within a year of having his legs amputated, he was back driving the car again because he went, but it was down to me. It was, it was how I responded, how I dealt with it, all of the, all of the trauma that I'd been through. It was down to me to interpret it in a way that made sense for me. Phenomenal, isn't it? In terms of the power of our mind and our body, if we really tune into that sort of information. Yeah, very much. And I think the earlier we can get into that. So whether it was me getting a, um, the humiliation in the boxing time, yeah. time then made me realise, well, actually, no, you brought this on yourself by acting like a dick 15 minutes earlier and life has just come along and yeah. and, and and sort of put you on your ass to teach you a lesson. Yeah. And this is one of the things that I, I was trying to explain to my son. I was like, don't go on it. You're 11 years old. It's like, like giving a monkey a machine gun. I'm not going to give you the tools to start posting things on social media and then complaining when you write 11-year-old nonsense on it. Do you know what I mean? So if I can help you with it, we can sort of educate you at a pace that's more effective. Well, Damien, we we could go on forever, you know, because there's so much we could talk about and and I'd love to continue on, but I'm just conscious of time. And I've just got a couple of questions that I'd like to fire your way and and play to that idea of being kind to our audience, you know, and I think we've been really kind in terms of, um, the offerings and the insights and a few suggestions along the way. But if I just chuck a couple of questions on you with a few cool. little uh, nuggets. 
you've written a, a number of really great books. I've read some myself. I, I would even like to say that a couple of my previous guests have recommended your book as some of the books that have influenced them. Oh, that's really uh, kind. Thank you. Which which is great. What what other books other than the ones that you've written would you uh, would be your sort of go to places that have really influenced, impacted on you? Oh wow, brilliant. Um, can I? Is, yeah. So can I give a couple of examples? Go for three, go on, go for three. Three, yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, one of the books that I, I read it every couple of years, uh, I read it when I was in my late teens by a guy called Brian Keenan, and it was a book called uh, An Evil Cradling, uh, and it had such a powerful impact on me. Uh, Brian Keenan was, um, he was a teacher, he went out to, Be he's from Northern Ireland, he went out to Beirut, and he was captured uh, and held as a, as a political prisoner. And I think he was there for nearly five years. And the book, The Evil Cradling, is, a, is about those five years. And just his eloquence, how articulate he is, but how uh, profoundly moving his messages are, which is about he, he had to go and find the core of who he was as a person. Wow. And then he had to protect that core in the most extreme and obdurate circumstances that uh, it had a real impact on me. Yeah. Uh, from a, uh, so when I was a kid, I, I remember persuading my uncle to take me to uh, Waterstones in Manchester, where he was speaking, just to just to be able to uh, hear him, uh, because I just found the eloquence of what he spoke about was so powerful, and so that had a real significant impact on me. I love that, and I'd recommend that book. It's quite a dark book, but it's yeah, worth yeah. reading. Yeah. Uh, another book that relates to some of this stuff is. Um, a book uh, called Man's Search for Meaning by the psychotherapist Dr. Dr. Victor Frankl. So again, I suppose there's a theme here that, oh, as I'm saying it, I'm recognising it. <laughs> Frankl, uh, Frankl was a prisoner in Auschwitz. Uh, now, you don't need a history lesson here, but the stats that he shares at the start is that only one in every 28 people that went through the gates of Auschwitz came out of there alive, and he was one of them. And his reflection was, why was I... Sort of survivor and 27 other people weren't and without his, like being crass he discounts for luck and different factors but he talks about how powerful choice was and he chose that he wouldn't view Auschwitz as a prison he would view it as a medical exercise he said human beings can't be this cruel and he chose to take on the role of being the caregiver the person that sustained and nurtured and encouraged people so that's um it's a phenomenal book uh, that's well worth anybody's time just to invest in reading it and then the third book is uh, a writer that i really like and admire is a psychologist from virginia university called dr jonathan Haidt, and he wrote a book um, about 10 years ago now called the happiness hypothesis that uh, is just really powerful he basically looks at um a lot of world order religions a lot of teachings that have come down through the through the centuries and distills them down for what are they actually teaching us about happiness and high performance? And he shows the common ground of them. And again, it's quite a thick book, but it's well worth the investment of reading it and getting... Uh, so I, um, I think it was Nick Hornby, the writer, that once said that he judged somebody by going into their house and looking at their record <laughs> collection because he felt it could tell you an awful lot. And I think, uh, I think looking at somebody's book collection uh, can betray some real uh, fascinating influences. So I read anything. I read voraciously. I read as widely as I can. But if I was going to recommend three books yeah. that have had quite a seminal impact on me, they're the three that, um, if any readers want to Brilliant. get stuck and, into them. And and Damien, do you give a real sense of probably what your bookshelf might look like by by sharing those three <laughs> books? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I'd, I'd say, David, that I'll offer you like just a very quick story. I often say go in and read anything. So when people come to me and say, what book should I read? Say anything, anything that grabs your interest, just yeah. read it. And the reason I suggest that is, this is an example from a few years ago. Um, my car broke down once and I was stuck at the side of the motorway <laughs> and I managed to get it into a service station. And uh, the, uh, the, the, re uh, the recovery guy said to me, I'm going to be a few hours. So I, I knew I had, I had nothing else to do. I wasn't anticipating this. So I went in the service station looking for something to read to occupy the time. And the only book that was in there was Gary Barlow's autobiography, yeah. right? <laughs> his first autobiography. Now, I'm confident that I'm not Gary Barlow's target audience. He didn't write the book with somebody like me in mind, but it was the only one that thought I'd pick it up. So I thought, you know what? I want to pick it up and just read it, just enjoy it for the hearing somebody's story, story. like what you're doing on this. Yeah. 
And I'll tell you what, there was two, there was two anecdotes he shared in it that I still use to this day that was really valuable. So one of them was that he was an autocrat and he talks about when he met up with one of his band members years later, they said to him, you were a dick because mm. he didn't listen to us. And his self-awareness to open himself up to feedback from somebody was powerful. And the other one was that he talks about when he was struggling musician, he had a file of facts and he wrote down all his dreams and ambitions he wanted to have where he, every time he opened it up. And he had things like, I want to be on top of the pops, I want to have a gold record, I want to be number one in this. And I sometimes talk about sometimes just sitting down and having a really clear line of sight of where you want to go was really powerful. Now, they were from a book that I would never have dreamt of picking it up mm-hmm. if I'd have had time or if it had gone in closed minded and gone, what we're going to learn from that? Well, the reality is if you read anything, there's always something, something that, that we can take from it. Yeah, if we choose to, if we choose to take the, the gems out 100%, of it, I guess. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. Brilliant. Well, and, and what also surprises me, always amazes me, actually, just listening to your stories is, is the information that you recall from all of these books from so far back and the, the stories that you've encountered. You know, it's just amazing because I, I sit here and think, gosh, I can't remember half of these things. That I <laughs> yeah, so. but, but that's a testimony to what you're doing. The name of your podcast is Sports Stories. Is But stories are the way that we learn. Stories yeah. are the way we pass on information. And that's what you're doing. And I yeah. think I'm only offering you stories. Yeah. that have spoke to me that mean I can pass them on and Brilliant. hopefully any of your listeners might get something useful from it. Well, I've got time for two more questions. Is that okay? Sure, go on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you've talked a little bit about, you know, being kind and being kind to yourself. How, how do you prepare yourself physically and mentally to be the best version of you? Uh, and what support mechanism do you have around you so you can perform? Oh, wow. Um, I think recognising... Um, Recognizing boundaries in terms of time. Um, So, as I said, I get lots of energy from spending time on my own and reflection. So whether that's going out for a walk, like when I was a kid, I I really got into just love going out to run. And it wasn't necessarily being able to run fast. It was being able to run and enjoy the solitude and and be alone with my thoughts. So I'm uh, quite protective of time on my own to read, reflect and do that. and that's a big part of it. And then uh, learning to say no, um, I, I, I really struggle with that. And uh, I've, I've put in place mechanisms. So I have a lady that picks up my email for me um, and she can sometimes be almost like a gatekeeper for me. Yeah. And when she, sends it, when she sends my emails on, she'll say, Damien, you don't have time to, because I'll go, oh yeah, I'll do it. And she'll go, no, you don't have time to do it. If you're being kind to yourself, you can't be in two places at once or you're going to have to drive recklessly to get between the two of them. So she acts as a gatekeeper for me. I mean, that one came about through, uh, it was, again, it was a painful experience that uh, I ended up once making a commitment to go from one place to another. And I always have in my head, like somebody said about Steve Jobs, that <laughs> Steve Jobs' time was he could bend time. <laughs> I'm not comparing myself to that, but I used to think, I'll, I'll find a way. So I remember making a commitment that would have taken four hours and they only had three hours to do it in. Oh. And I remember thinking, I'll find a way, I'll, I'll work it out. I'll fly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I, I ended up um, like driving ridiculous speed and the police pulled me over on the motorway and I'd never been in trouble like this before. And I had to go to court. I was mortified. And um, I mean, this is a long time ago, but the solicitor said to me, this is a, I mean, this is a coaching lesson. <laughs> I was like, because I was doing something, it was for a charity, right? And I was trying to explain this and justify and mitigate it. And the solicitor went, he said, with all due respect there, he said, I don't give a shit. He said, yeah. were you driving that car? And I went, yeah. And he said, nobody cares about whether you were trying to be Mother Teresa, whether you were trying to save lives. He said, you were driving that car recklessly. You're responsible for it. And I had to go to court and, and apologise. And I was fortunate that the, that the magistrate was very sympathetic. But it made me again. It's one of those moments Great where you go, why did I need to get to this point before I reflected and went? Being saying yes and being too accessible yeah. as that has caused me repercussions. Yeah. So learn to say no. And that was where Susan, the lady that um, I work with, I, yeah. I I found her and went, I need your help. Oh. I need to sort of help me with this. Well, and a great lesson there in terms of being able to ask for help, isn't there, in terms of that's such a, a strength in some ways. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Great. Um, okay, last question and a half here. 
people that are influential in your life you know what we're doing here you know you've 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 shared your story you mentioned about your father are there any other people that have been absolutely pivotal and i, I appreciate probably many but are there any standout ones that you would say gosh they 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 are still with me today in terms of what they said or did and impacted on me yeah definitely um and like you say I, um <laughs> there's a part of my brain as I'm about to answer this thinking, but you're missing out him and him and them. Yeah. And, and, and so I feel terrible about that. Uh, but yeah, there's been, um, there's been a number of them. Um, one, uh, um, a friend of mine called Tony Smith, uh, an Australian yeah. rugby league coach. Yeah. Um, well. So Tony and myself, um, been friends for a long time. And long before I ever did any work with Tony, we just used to meet once a month for go yeah. for a pint in a pub. And we'd just sit and chat and I'd talk to him about issues and get his perspective. And he'd do the same with me. And then uh, when I'd left the corporate world and set up on my own and I'd come out of academia, Tony was really keen and said, would you be interested in coming to help me? And uh, Tony and myself worked together for a long time uh, and had a lot of fun. Um, sort of trying to take some of these ideas. So Tony uh, was very seminal in terms of uh, my work. Um, and I'd mentioned, I'd, 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 I said to you, I'm working with Jake Humphrey now. Um, Jake's a phenomenal bloke. Um, I mean, his story is really powerful. That he comes from, uh, he comes from Norfolk, a little village uh, just outside of Norwich. Yeah. He was badly bullied as a kid at school. Right. Uh, like quite traumatic stories that are really unpleasant when he sits and tells you them. But it shaped his whole identity. Of part of the reason he wanted to do the podcast was to sort of give back oh, to right. people and feel that he could make a difference, that he's fortunate enough to be around some phenomenal people in terms of his work on BT Sport and things like that. Yeah. But he wants to almost take some of the, the conversations that he has and, and get people to realise there's no secret. There's lots of, of, uh, of replicable things. And I think establishing a friendship with Jake has been a real privilege yeah. because I think it, it's just the opportunity to be around somebody that uh, has reached the summit of his own game in terms of television yeah. presenting, but has retained with it humility, decency, and kindness as well. So they're just two examples uh, yeah. amongst uh, a legion of yeah. people that I've been lucky enough to work with. And, and, they're, and they're fantastic. And I love that idea of, of friendship and how friendships are sometimes really influential to us. You know, they might be the small things or they're just the people around us can really influence and impact on us. So. No, Damien, thanks for sharing those. And, and the, probably the part B question, and I'm really conscious right. of asking this question to you in terms of, you know, on that, the High Performance Podcast, which yourself and Jake are, are doing, you know, you're speaking to a yeah. number of people, hearing loads of great and interesting and inspirational stories. Who's, whose story might you still like to hear? Whose sports story would you be interested in, in terms of, you know, your curiosity? And, you know, if, if they're not going to have them on the high performance podcast, then maybe I could try and invite them on my podcast. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, who would it like? Um, I, I've done a couple of boxing biographies um, yeah. of, of sort of um, Marvin Hagler, Thomas Hearns and Sugar Ray Robinson. So yeah. boxing's uh, a big driver for me in terms of that. I love, I love the singular nature of yeah. it. So uh, I'd probably say Marvin Hagler. That yeah. I love him. He was a blue collar, a blue collar fighter um, that sort of scrapped and worked his way up to become yeah. world champion. So uh, I'd put him on there. Brilliant. Well, Damien, it just leads me to to say a, a huge thanks a lot for being so open, honest, and sharing your stories along the way. Fully appreciate it. I really do hope that um, my audience, you know, pick up one or two things. I'm, I'm absolutely guaranteed that they will, you know. And I'd love to have you on the on the Sports Stories podcast at a later stage. Should, should it, so. thank you and should anybody wish to um just find out more about what you're doing i guess have you got a website or anything that you're setting up I, I know you yeah 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 them. so yeah so it's called liquidthinker.com so there's a contact page on the on the website cool. uh if anyone wants to drop us a line if there's anything on this that they want more information on or they want to just check out a reading list or anything like that yeah. uh, they're more than welcome go to liquidthinker.com uh, and drop me a line from there and I promise I'll always pick it up from this one. Brilliant. Well, I'll make sure those notes are also on the show notes for the podcast so people can pick those up there. Um, just leads me to say, once again, thanks ever so much. Take care. Uh, it's been a real privilege. Thank you, Dave. Yeah, look after yourself and we'll, we'll be in touch. How's that? You too. That sounds brilliant. Thank you. 
Well, that was such a pleasure talking to a fellow podcast host and asking the questions. For me, Damien never fails to offer great value, insight, and a challenge. And he comes across as a person who has really thought about who he is and wants to be and lives to this as best he can. His non-negotiable behaviors and principles shine through. He is kind in his openness and offering, relaxed, engaging in and with his responses, shared his sense of humor, and we had a laugh. And lastly, you could sense his desire to help and make a difference. It really made me reflect back on the power of people's stories. Hearing Damien's story really made me consider my past and what I stand for, but also hearing the takeaways he has gained from the High Performance Podcast was as enlightening and inspirational. It has once again reaffirmed to me the power and the purpose stories and sport can play in people's lives and again given me further energy and enthusiasm to help more people access the benefits it can bring. Now as usual the conversation has provided many thoughts and questions for me, in fact so many I won't recall them all, but true to form and in my attempt to further add value to you I would like to pose the following for you to consider. What are your non-negotiable behaviours and principles and why are they important to you? And secondly, what are you not taking 100% responsibility for? How might you change this and what might the benefits be? Do take a look at the podcast show notes as these questions and more are listed. There is also a list of some of the many phrases, comments and statements that resonated with me. Damien mentioned the concept of me search. I see this as research into yourself, who you are, what you stand for, what's working and what does not work for you. Really considering yourself and developing a great self-awareness is key. Well, to do this and reap the benefits, consider the questions, listen back to the pod and take some time to consider and reflect. I'd like to draw your attention now to the Sports Stories Academy and the coaching and mentoring offering. Sports Stories Academy will provide resources, content and frameworks to support you on your development journey, helping you navigate difficulties as well as opportunities you currently face Keep a lookout on the social media platforms and the Sports Stories website for details. Now the coaching and mentoring service goes live later this month and gives you the opportunity to gain help and support from experienced and highly qualified coaches and mentors like Damien and myself, who have a good understanding of sport and performance principles and are keen to help individuals and organizations develop and grow. To best keep track on the developments of the Academy and the coaching and mentoring offering, as well as future podcast guests, sign up on the Sports Stories website at www.sportstories247.com and you won't miss a thing. Now, as we round off this episode, I just wanted to thank you for joining me for Series 4. I'm really keen to continue building the Sports Stories momentum we have developed over the past eight months. So please keep in touch, share your successes, let me know your pain points so we can continue to give you, the listener, great content that plays to the Sports Stories principles of providing inspiration, education, and transformation. So from me, Dave Levine, I'd like to thank Damien for being such a great guest. And to you, the listener, have a great week. Consider the questions that I've posed. Take responsibility for your choices. And I look forward to you joining me again really soon. Have a good week.